Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all and hear you. This is our uh, World Missions uh, Week at Second Presbyterian. So if you see a lot of folks you don't know, maybe those are some missionaries, and give them a hug. Tell them how much you love them and appreciate them. It's, uh, we, we do this every year because uh, we really need to bring the world to us in a very intentional way at least once a year and remind ourselves of the Great Commission and uh, to devote ourselves to it anew. And here, second, we, we ask people to give separately to a world missions budget. And uh, that's important because uh, if, if we don't bring what's far away near every year, it's easy to forget. Forget how poor the nations of the world are. Forget how lost uh, many of the nations of the world are. So this is our, our week. And uh, we, if those of you who are not members of Second, we appreciate your prayers for us this week. It's always a great challenge. Well, speaking of the world, let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians. And here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is showing some new converts how to live in the world as a holy man, how to be a different person in a broken down world. And that's not easy to do if you've tried it lately. <laughs> it's, and it can even be dangerous. It can cost you your life, uh, as it ultimately did the Apostle Paul's life. And what we, we found is that Paul went to Corinth and led people to Christ, and initially all by himself, because Timothy was delayed. Paul went from Athens to Corinth, began to preach the gospel, had people come to Christ, and he started discipling them. And then when he leaves them, some other teachers come in teaching some different stuff. And frankly, humanly speaking, they're just more impressive men. They're more eloquent. Uh, they're more demanding in some ways, uh, they seem to be more self-confident, and they don't seem to be weak like the Apostle Paul. So they're very attractive teachers. And the Corinthian Christians begin to believe what these guys are saying. And the new teachers are telling the Corinthians that Paul is really not worth listening to, that Paul maybe got some things right, that you do need Jesus, but they begin to teach the people other things, including, we believe, especially from the text that's before us this morning, that uh, they need to have Jesus and all the law-keeping uh, of the uh, laws in the Old Testament, including circumcision and following the, the Sabbaths and other rituals that the Jewish community would have had. Uh, it seems clear that that's the kind of teaching these super-apostles would have been carrying out. And it's just, it's just symptomatic, uh, isn't it, of what happens to all of us. We come to Christ, and then I remember myself becoming a Christian and being exposed to many different types of teaching. And you, you get into uh, the Christian world and you realize, I've got some decisions to make, some doctrinal decisions and even some lifestyle decisions because there's an array of options out there. And that's nothing new. There were arrays of options with the Apostle Paul. I mean, here Paul is. He goes by himself to Corinth at the risk of his own life, evangelizes people, leads them to Christ, and pretty soon they're off onto other teachings. It's just amazing how quickly that can happen. And it's not just because we have all these options. Paul explains to Timothy later in his career, Timothy is because of that plus the fact that we human beings have itching ears. And we will gather around ourselves the teachers that we want to teach us what we want to hear. That's just human nature. So what we find is that in the Christian life, it's not just a matter of being led to Christ and then you're saved. 
it's a being matter of led to Christ and you're justified, and then you need to be sanctified and one day glorified, and then you'll have the fullness of your salvation. So if salvation is partly uh, you have, have it now, you'll get some of it later in this life as you continue to grow in Christ, and you'll finally get your salvation, which is the dominant way the Bible uses the word, when you get to glory. So salvation is a process, too, as well as an event that, that's already happened. So that's the reason we're in Amen Bible study, because we have all kinds of options out there, people trying to convince us of one thing or another, and we've just got to go back to the apostles. And that's what it means to go back to the Bible. You're going back to the New Testament, the apostles' doctrine, as they teach the Old Testament and tell us what the Old Testament means in Christ. And that's what we do whenever we study the Bible, and we need it. Because as the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we all are prone to wander, and they surely were in Corinth. We've seen that Paul is having to say to them that uh, to reestablish his credibility that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he was commissioned by God, and that he has the authority to lay down what is the true doctrine revealed from heaven. And in doing so, they begin to say, well, aren't you just boasting about yourself? I mean... You can't win. You know, on the one hand, uh, they, they want to deny his apostolicity. On the other hand, when he begins to assert it, then they start making other claims about him. It's just endless. And if you're seeking to, to help somebody in Christ, you'll find that you'll always have opposition. And if you worry about the opposition and what it's saying about you, you're never going to make any progress. But Paul wants to make progress with those who will listen. And we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, that's exactly what he's doing. Now, when we come to chapter 3, this is a very important chapter. It teaches us about the very ministry of the new covenant. We're going to see that Paul is saying, not only is it my credentials as an apostle, it's actually the content of what I'm preaching and teaching that you need to listen to. And he shows how his teaching differs from the teaching of these super apostles. In the midst of that, we get a great lesson about how Old Testament relates to New Testament, how New Covenant relates to Old Covenant, because Paul is peeling back some theological layers so that we can see what's underneath his passion about his particular teaching. So let's take full advantage of it. We'll read the whole chapter right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear the Word of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, Letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, first of all, we'll notice in these first five verses that Paul is again asserting his own credentials. And he's saying that our credentials are spiritual. And our credentials as Christians are spiritual and not so much physical. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm a pastor in a Presbyterian church, I have credentials, they say, in the Presbytery. So the Presbytery is a collection of elders and pastors from several churches in our region. They examine the pastors. They approve the pastors. They approve the pastors continuing in those places of service. And so therefore, the language is, we have our credentials in Presbytery. And they give me the title Reverend. And there's my credentials, Reverend Wilson. Well, there's a certain sense in which those kinds of things are good and helpful. We need to have elders examining other elders to be sure that they're competent and suitable to be in certain places of service. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That ultimately, your credentials are not because of an office you hold in the church as elder or deacon or pastor or Sunday school teacher or, or trustee or, or anything else. Your credentials ultimately are spiritual credentials. And let's, let's look at Paul's argument to see how he's trying to slice through their way of credentialing someone to see if they're going to believe them or listen to them. Paul says, first of all, uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, even in Presbyterian churches to this day, if you live in Chicago and move to Memphis, you move your membership from your church in Chicago to Memphis, and we get a letter of recommendation from your church in Chicago, commending you to us. And we receive you here on the basis of a commendation from a sister church in another place. Now that's old ways of doing things and I wish we'd continue to do them that way so that we would express the ecumenicity of the entire church. We take letters of transfer from all different kinds of churches, not just Presbyterian churches. That's what we ought to do. That recognizes that there are churches other than yours. And they were all in one body of Christ. And so we commend each other to each other. Well, that's not a bad thing at all. That was typical, not only in the first century, but even in the 
past centuries of the church. But Paul is saying, look, you're saying that for me to be commended to you, I need to have letters from somebody. Now scholars are wondering, who would these letters come from? What's he talking about here? Well, it seems that the super apostles, when they came teaching another gospel in Corinth, they actually had letters of recommendation. Now we don't know who would have written these letters of recommendation, but it's not too hard to speculate that it probably was some Judaistic uh, Christians or legalistic slash Christo believers in Jerusalem who were following Paul around. They were aware that Paul was going to the Gentiles and that he was preaching a gospel of grace and that he was having them come into the people of God, the church, without circumcision, without keeping the habits of the Jews, and he was taking these wild and crazy Gentiles and just bringing them into the church. And a lot of people were upset about that. People back in Jerusalem. And so they would send out representatives behind him and take some of these converts and try to retrain them in the ways of the Jews. And they would say to them, you have to have Christ and the law. That's what appears to be going on. And Paul is saying here, yeah, you are, do we need like your other teachers to have letters of recommendation? Do I need to go get letters of recommendation? He's saying, who would I get them from? You mean get it from Christ? He's the one who called me into this ministry. So Paul as an apostle gets his recommendation from God. But keep reading. In verses 2 and 3, you see, first of all, we are commended by the very Spirit-filled disciples that we, that we disciple. That's our basic commendation spiritually. Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. He's saying, look at yourselves. And look what the gospel that I preached did to you. That's my recommendation. And gentlemen, let me tell you, that always is. Now ultimately, our commendation comes from God alone. It's invisible, nobody else can see it. But in our consciences, we know that we don't even judge ourselves ultimately. Christ is our judge. But when you get down to things that people can see and assess, the recommendation is not whether... Presbytery credentials me. It's not whether you have a formal membership somewhere, although both of us ought to. I need to be credentialed by Presbytery. You need to belong to local church. You need to have their commendation. You need to have their approval. But ultimately, if you want to know if someone's teaching the gospel, look at the disciples that are around them. And look at the lives. Are they being changed? Are they being liberated? Are they being filled with joy? Are they lives that reproduce? And there's the recommendation. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is we're commended by you. Look at yourselves. And when you look at yourselves, what do you see? You see some people who used to promote a gay lifestyle. Literally, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And they get converted. They meet Christ. And they may have same-sex attraction, but they're no longer promoting a lifestyle that dishonors God. So maybe their same-sex attraction doesn't change. But their behavior sure changes when they come to Christ, and it did. They had some same-sex attracted people in that church who had changed their lifestyle. Paul says, look at yourself. You're different than you used to be. He had some people who were whoremongers, who used to love to go to the pagan temples and have sex with the prostitutes and who bragged about it. He says, look at you. Some of you who are, who are having sex with prostitutes, you're not doing that anymore. Your life is cleaned up. You're faithful to your wife. Just look at yourself. He had some people who defrauded people and cheated them and and withheld funds from people that deserved them, uh, who were working for them. He had people who would beat people in their household, and they no longer did that. He said, look at yourselves. 
And it's not me personally. It's the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit I proclaim to you that changed your lives. That's my recommendation to you. So Paul is saying, look, if you want to be practical, let's really get practical. And only God can ultimately commend us, but secondarily, our disciples, our followers do commend us. So what are our credentials and what are your credentials? Is there there an obvious effect of your believing in the Lord Jesus Christ on everybody who's under your influence? Are you single and you're dating somebody? Is that woman blessed because she's dating a Christian man? Are you married? Is your wife blessed? Is her life being changed? Is she being influenced in gospel truth and gospel living because you're married to her? What about your children? Are they being shaped by the gospel? If you've got young children at home, of course you can't make anybody a Christian and you can't uh, make them a serious disciple. But what you find is as you teach and model the gospel that there will be an effect upon those children. That's the reason that in church leadership we often say the best testing ground, the Apostle Paul said this, is what's happening in your household. There's your letter of recommendation. And you say, well, my life's all screwed up and it's not looking so good. Why don't you start today? And you can say from this day until here, here's how I've lived my life. And people's lives around you will be shaped. They were with the Apostle Paul. Secondly, Paul says, look, these these super apostles are so self-confident and they claim competence for themselves. And they tell you that any spiritually minded person is a self-confident person. Well, he says, well, let me tell you, we are made competent by His sufficiency, not our own. So he's saying if you believe in the new covenant, if you believe in the gospel preaching, you will not be ultimately a self-confident person in your own energy or your own virtue, you will be competent and confident, yes, only in a derived way. That is, by the sufficiency of Jesus Christ working in and through you. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul asks the questions, and the question in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? And of course he's saying nobody is sufficient on their own. But then Paul discovers over and over again in the midst of trials particularly that the grace of Christ is sufficient for him, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here he's saying it again, I have found his grace sufficient for me in my trials, and I found his sufficiency his sufficiency. Uh, sufficient for me, His grace sufficient for me in my ministry. So brothers, in your ministry, no matter what you're doing, as you carry out your ministry in the workplace, as you do it in your civic life, with your distinctively Christian gospel ministry, of course at times you feel inadequate. You think, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. If you're actively engaged in ministry, you ought to be experiencing that quite regularly. Like with me, it's daily. I'm going into situations, I don't know how to do them, and, and there's a sense of, of not, I won't call it terror, it's not as though I'm, I'm always trembling, but there's a sense of dread, like I know that I, Sandy Wilson, am going into a situation that I, Sandy Wilson, am not competent to handle. That's every day for me. And so what I've learned, and what Paul is teaching here, is that, you know, when Christ is in you, You just go, and you just get there, 
And you become a conduit for His sufficiency. And so His all-sufficiency, and He's called in the Scriptures the all-sufficient God. The all-sufficient God makes you sufficient for whatever circumstance you're dealing with. Someone who's a pagan might think, wow, what a confident person. He just goes everywhere. He's confident. He can do this, that, and the other. You know, like the Apostle Paul is saying, no, it's not I. It is Christ working through me, and I'm terrified. I couldn't possibly do this on my own. This is what Paul is teaching. So he say, this, is, this is consistent with what he's saying about his own weakness. You all, he says, are despising me because I'm weak. He said, look, that's my credential. That it is my human weakness, and it's through my weakness that the power of the gospel and the power of Christ is working. And he's saying that's the very nature of the new covenant or of the gospel in the Old Testament. For that matter, it's always the strength of Christ working through human weakness. And if we arise and present ourselves as strong, then we're just simply presenting that strength instead of the strength of God that works particularly and specifically through human weakness. Now, those are his credentials. They're deeply spiritual credentials. He's saying, look at the effect of what I'm teaching in human lives and see if they are being liberated from bondage. See if they are being filled with joy. See if their lifestyles are being transformed. You tell me. And then he says, look and see if I'm trusting in myself or trusting in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are, those are Christian credentials for ministry. And guess what? You don't have to be ordained by the church to do that, do you? Thank God. Anybody who's a believer and everybody who's a believer has those spiritual credentials to do the work of the gospel. Now, in verses 6 through 18, what we're going to see is that Paul also has a very important credential, and it's because his ministry is a more glorious ministry than ministries of other messages. In other words, Paul is saying that one of my credentials is the message that I'm teaching. And it is the true and divine message. It is the gospel. And he's going to show us how. So it's not only the effects of our ministry, and it's not only the dependence of the minister, the Christian, on God's power, but it's actually also the message that he's conveying. And that is his credential. And he's going to show us how his message is superior to the message of these false messages, these substitute Gospels, these ersatz Gospels, these pseudo-Gospels. He's going to show the superiority of the real Gospel to those, which helps us once again to see what the Gospel really is. First of all, the ministry is more glorious because it brings life rather than death. Paul says, He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Now that should ring a bell in everybody's mind who knows their Old Testament. Because in Jeremiah 31, God promises that He will bring a new covenant. We've had covenants in the Old Testament. The covenant made with, uh, with Abraham is certainly a classic covenant. Before that, you had a covenant with Noah. You had a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. Covenant with David that he would keep his dynasty forever and ever. So all these Old Testament covenants, we can sort of lump in one thing and call it the Old Covenant. It's the Old Testament, so to speak. And Paul is saying that he's made us ministers of 
a new covenant. The one that Jeremiah is talking about. So Paul is saying, look, what I'm teaching to you is right there in the Old Testament. This is a fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And that's exactly who Christ is. He fulfills all the promises in the Old Testament. This is not God's plan B because people just screwed up plan A. They did screw up plan A, but this is still plan A. It always was planned this way. Christ was appointed by God from all eternity. He was the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. So it was in God's eternal plan to redeem us through Christ. So this is all plan A. It's all part of the covenant. One covenant in the Scriptures. But Jeremiah says a new covenant. You had Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. Now there's going to be the new one. And, and Paul says, Hello! This is the time right now for the coming of the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. And here's how he says it, it differs. It is not by the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul is saying that this new covenant preached in Christ brings us the age of the Spirit and that we look for our obedience before God not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Now, if you look at this, he says the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now it looks as though he's saying that there's something wrong with the law in the Old Testament. That would be a bad mistake. Paul disabuses us of this idea in Romans chapter 7. In fact, turn to Romans 7 for just a moment. Uh, just a few pages back in your Bible. Uh, on page 2169. And he says in verse 10, Romans 7, 10, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So Moses said, as we saw in De Deuteronomy a few years ago, Do this and you shall live. Here's life, he says. Follow the commandments of God. And Paul says here, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Well, for sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul says, the law that was given to give me life actually killed me. Why? Because of sin. That's why. Knucklehead. It's not because of the law. Don't blame the law. That's very sinful human of you to blame the law. It's, it's your sin. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't blame the law, because when you read the law and tried to keep it, it killed you. No, blame, blame yourself, your flesh. And Paul goes on in Romans 7 to show us how deadly it is to try to live an, a moral life by the methodology of the law. That is, the methodology of simply reading the letter of the law and trying to put it into practice. One of my friends had a kid, uh, and, and this guy was a, a minister, and his third grade kid was caught in school for cheating. Just looking on a kid's paper. And my friend, the pastor, you know, was you know, heartbroken, but also realized that's hey, a third grader, you know, I probably did worse than that in the third grade. But he he says to his son, so what were you thinking? And he said, Dad, the more I thought about, you know, that I was not supposed to cheat, 
I knew I was not supposed to cheat. I was not supposed to cheat. The more I thought about it, the more my eyes just wanted to go over and look at, at his paper. Bingo. It's exactly it. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't do pornography. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. The more you think like that, right onto pornography. It's automatic. It, the letter kills. There's nothing wrong with the law that thou shalt not commit adultery. There's nothing wrong with that law. There's something wrong with you. You're fallen. So when you look at that law and try to keep the commandments like paint by the numbers, do you ever do that as a kid? You, know, you get a, a blind, you, you get a drawing and it's got little numbers in it and then you've got a palette over here of paints and they're all numbered and you put number two right here and you put number four right there. You paint by the numbers you come out, oh, you got this beautiful Rembrandt, you know, when you get through. And a lot of people are trying to obey God that way. Oh, you, seventh commandment, let's put it in here in my life. You know, first commandment, no other gods before you. Let me put that in here. And it's all mechanical. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 and when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, I do it. He's just com- he, he, he shows the complete frustration of trying to be, live a holy life in an unholy world according to these super apostles. Because that's what they're teaching. It's very moralistic. And it's guilt-driven. And it ends up being manipulative. And it doesn't work. That's the problem. And Paul says, you want a letter of recommendation from me for my gospel? Just look at yourselves and your lifestyles and how they've changed. Did they change because I preached the law to you? Or did they change because I preached the gospel to you? And so he's constantly challenging them about the Christian motivation, for the, the motivation for the Christian heart. Now, in Romans 7 then, you'll see the letter does kill because the law is true and good and holy and right. And if you don't have any help, it's going gonna, it's gonna to damn you and kill you. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. It brings death. So these guys who are preaching to you a moralistic gospel, a lot of what they say will be absolutely true about the law. But they'll give you no power to keep it. And you'll just be dead. And you get to the end of the day, you're still dead. You have no salvation. The law cannot save sinners. The law can condemn sinners. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the law can convict sinners. And the law, by the power of the Holy Spirit can motivate sinners to get to salvation in Jesus Christ. But the law can't save you. And your law-keeping can't save you. That's what Paul's trying to say here. He says the letter kills, but the Spirit, it gives life. If I preach a gospel of the Holy Spirit, that Christ died to remove the penalty of your sin against the law, I preach that, and then I preach to you, that just as you receive an alien righteousness for your justification before God, you also receive an alien power by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 8. He says, O wretched man that I am in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death. And then he says, Thanks be to God who delivers us. And how does He deliver us? Romans 8, the life of the Spirit. So we don't paint by numbers. I'm not looking at the numbers and trying to do the law myself. I'm looking to the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, paint a Rembrandt here with this broken life of mine. You paint it and empower me to be the painter. 
And I'm just simply looking to Him and applying to Him, the great artist, to restore a broken life. That's what Paul is saying about the teaching he was doing. I'm leading you to trust in God the Holy Spirit for your life. Not to trust in your moral ability. Even if you've been converted, you do not have sufficient moral ability to keep the law of God. So often we think, you know, well, my task is to come and confess my sins and give my life to Christ and, then, and trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, after I've done that, it's all on me. There's a word I want to use, but let me just say baloney, okay? <laughs> it's not all on you. It's all on Christ. He works through you in a different way. When you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're trusting in His work for you. When you're trusting in the Holy Spirit, you're trusting His work in and through you. So it's still He who is doing the work, but instead of having done it for you, before you even knew anything about it, now He's working and you're conscious of it. He's working through you. But it's the same trust and the same faith. That's the new covenant. Paul is saying, you want my credentials? My message brings life for you and not damnation, not death. And he goes on to say it justifies rather than condemns. And we sort of anticipated this in our comments, but in verses 9 and 10, it not only brings life, but it brings justification. Why do I say justification? Well, because the word for righteousness and justification, dikaiosune, is the same in Greek. So he says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and there was glory, and these new teachers were teaching the glory. He says, they said, Look, Paul's been talking about the gospel. Where's his glory? I'll tell you where our glory is. Moses went up to the mountain. And the mountain shook with smoke. And God gave him a law. And he came down with that divinely given law. And Moses would go in the tent of meeting, Exodus 34, and he would talk directly with God. And when he came out of that tent, his face was radiant with the glory of God. Tell me, does Paul's face shine like that? Well, I'm telling you, Moses' face did. There was glory, visible, evident glory and power in the covenant that we're proclaiming to you. And this is how you get to know God. It's through Moses the mediator. And Paul says, indeed, there was a glory there. And indeed, the glory of God shone upon the face of Moses. And if there was glory there when that ministry condemned you, how much, glorious, how much more glorious would the ministry be if there's a covenant if there's a message that brings you not condemnation, but makes you righteous before God so that you stand before Him as an innocent human being, even though you're a wretched sinner. Now, what kind of glory would there be with that kind of a covenant? And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying uh, that uh, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of justification, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So Paul is saying, by comparison with the glory of this covenant I've been proclaiming to you that sets you free from the condemnation of God by a simple act of faith, by comparison to that, what was glorious in Moses' ministry has no glory now by comparison. And Paul's saying, this is the nature of the glory of this ministry. You've not understood the glory. 
So when these new teachers came to you and told you about some fantastic events in the Old Testament, you were so moved and impressed by it. He says, let me tell you, that's nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done on Calvary's cross and raised from the grave and has prepared a place for you in heaven and has sent His Spirit in fullness at Pentecost. There's glory, He says. And so in the simplicity of the little Christian community, without all of the Jewish liturgy and all of the Jewish history and all the Jewish glory that could be displayed, even evidently with their sacrifices before the people, Paul says, it may be invisible to the unbeliever, but to the believer there is an infinite glory in this gospel. And so Paul is calling them back to the credentials of the gospel itself. Now look in verses 11 through 13, and we see that this new covenant is more glorious because it's permanent rather than temporary. Look what he says. For if what was brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And he goes on to show how Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. If you look at the Old Testament text, your first impression would be that Moses puts a veil over his face so the people won't be terrified by the glory of God on his face. Paul says, no. This is the reason for the veil. The reason for the veil is so they wouldn't see the glory fade off of Moses' face. And Paul is saying the glory that came in the Old Testament is a fading glory. It's a temporary glory. It only has glory as it points to the ultimate glory that's coming in Jesus Christ. And so he says, if these new teachers, these Judaizers, these moralistic teachers are right, that their system of Christianity has more glory in it. Let me tell you, this has even more glory because the glory they're proclaiming fades. This doesn't fade. It remains in Jesus Christ. It's permanent. And theirs is temporary. And I've mentioned some texts here in Hebrews. And the main point of Hebrews is the same thing. Paul's writing to Jewish believers who sometimes are very disappointed in the simplicity of the worship among these people. It doesn't seem to have the same glory in the liturgy. There's no bloody animals being sacrificed. There's, there's not the same glory and pageantry in their worship. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, God has made obsolete the old covenant by the new covenant. It doesn't work anymore. And we're not even to give ourselves to it. That was for the days of our minority. When you're under 18, you're under certain restrictions and you obey your parents at home. When you're 25, you're an adult. You're leading your own home. You're leading your own life. If you go back and try to act like an 18-year-old kid, your parents are going to say, what is wrong with you? You're living like a minor. Grow up. You're a major. Live like one. And that's what Paul is saying. The minority days are over. You're an adult in Christ. You don't go back to your days when you had to paint by the numbers to try to keep restrictions on your life. And so he's saying it's permanent. And then fourthly, this new covenant is more glorious because it reveals rather than obscures. Now, I may not have worded this just right. But let me say two things about it. Number one, in the Old Testament, you find Christ. Paul, uh, uh, Luke says that after the resurrection, Jesus met with His disciples, and then He showed them, this is in Luke 24, 
He showed them how everything in the Scriptures pointed to Himself. So Christ is tucked into the Old Testament, but sometimes in ways that Old Testament saints couldn't quite see. But when we go back and look at the Word of Moses and the Word of Isaiah and the Word of David, we see Christ throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament at times has Christ in obscure ways. And in the New Testament, Christ is revealed fully. So we're aware of the glory of the New Testament because it more explicitly displays Christ in very pronounced ways. But also in the Old Covenant, we were inclined to obscure the text itself from seeing Christ. And here's what Paul says, as a result of our sin, not the covenants themselves, but in verses 14 through 16, as a result of our sin, we have a veil over our own eyes. <clears throat> so here he takes the analogy of the veil, and he says, not only did Moses have a veil to obscure the fading nature of the old covenant as his glory faded off his face, but the Jews themselves have a veil over their eyes. Their eyes. There are two veils. Moses' veil and the old covenant adherence veil. And what does their veil do? Well, it lies over their hearts, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So what is this veil over their hearts? This is a veil that keeps them from seeing the good news of their true liberation. It's a veil that bounds them to ignorance of seeing the real meaning of the Old Covenant. The real meaning of the Old Covenant is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Christ do we become children of Abraham, for example. You have the Abrahamic Covenant, but only through Christ can you be a child of Abraham, whether you're Jew or Gentile. You can be an ethnic Jew and you are not a child of Abraham if you're not in Jesus Christ. And you do not have the promises of Abraham unless you're in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches this everywhere, but particularly in Galatians and in Philippians and in Romans. So you have to be in Christ to inherit all the promises that go to Abraham. Likewise with David. The only way you have a king and be under his kingship is if you receive Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And that's how you have the dynasty going on. The Davidic dynasty is not going on in an ethnic national, national group. The Davidic dynasty is going on through the church who has received Christ and has become His holy nation, to use Peter's language and, and Moses' language in Exodus 19. So we're the holy nation, the Davidic dynasty, because we're trusting in Christ. Paul is saying the only way you can understand the Old Covenant and receive its application to yourself is through receiving Christ. So there's a veil over the face of Jews, he says, even to his day. And I'm saying to you, to our day as well. There is a veil over the face. And until the, and there's only one way to, to, be, uh, to receive the promises of the Old Covenant. That's to have that veil taken away so you can see the real meaning of the Old Covenant. And what is the meaning? Look here, Christ, verse 16. So only in Christ is the veil taken away, the blindness off the eyes of someone who knows the Old Covenant. You can know the Old Testament. You can have it memorized. But if you don't see it in Christ, you don't understand it, and all it does is it condemns you. 
But if you have Christ, you look at the Old Testament and you see Christ and you are saved by the Word of God. So it, the Old Covenant by itself reveal, uh, obscures rather than reveals. But the New Covenant, Paul says, I've revealed to you the meaning of the Old Testament. If you want to know the meaning of, of Moses going to the top of Sinai and coming down with the law and what that means for us, I can tell you in Christ exactly what that means. So the New Covenant, the preaching of the Gospel, teaches us the Old Testament as it really is. And it gives us life. Now, verse 17. He says the New Covenant liberates rather than restrains. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And scholars say, what does he mean when he says the Lord is the Spirit? Normally when we say the Lord... We're speaking of either the triune God or of Christ Himself, the Lord. Here, uniquely, Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit. Well, the Lord is the triune God. And the Lord is the Father. And the Lord is the Son. And the Lord is the Spirit. And Paul is saying, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have the Lord. So if someone tries to understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit, they don't have the Lord. They may have the word Lord. They may think they have the Lord. But they don't have the Lord if they don't have the Spirit. So if they're non-Trinitarian, they don't have the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit, he's saying. So he's really pressing his point. He's saying this is the age of the Spirit. And don't think the Spirit is just some influence from God, some flood of blessing that comes from Him. No, it's the Lord Himself, God Himself, who comes and takes up residence in our hearts. So the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So it liberates. Now, brothers, if you've been a Christian for a while, you need to be reminded of the liberation that you have. It's kind of like, you know, there's hardly anybody here, I suppose, that fought in World War II. And you wouldn't remember what... what, what D-Day was like, or what uh, VE Day was like, or the ticker tape parade in New York after all, you know, when the troops were coming home and the, the, the beauty of being liberated from the threat of the Nazi invasion uh, all across the world. But to be liberated is a great blessing, and Paul is saying only in Christ are people liberated. Liberated how? Well, certainly we know from the Scriptures that freedom is a key concept. Jesus said to His Jewish hearers, Jesus was Jewish, He's talking to His fellow Jews, and He says, if you believe the truth, the truth will set you free. And they're saying, why do you mean freedom? And they say, we've never been enslaved by anybody. And you're scratching your head saying, these people not remember Babylon? These people not remember Egypt? These people not... What's happened with our historical memory? Do you not remember you were slaves? And Paul says it's only by listening to the truth that he was preaching, or Jesus said, only by the truth that he was preaching that we are set free. And then the response was, we've never been in slavery. Look at how enslaving slavery is. It causes you to deny that you're even in slavery or been in slavery. And Jesus says, you've been in slavery, you are in slavery, and the truth I'm giving to you will set you free. Now when you get to the apostolic doctrine with the Apostle Paul, he shows you how we are liberated. First of all, we're liberated from condemnation, aren't we? Paul shows us clearly in, in his letters how we're free from the condemnation from on high. We're no longer considered guilty. He also shows us how we're free from the bondage of corruption. And he shows us how we're free in the gospel from legalism. 
that we're not motivated by fear and guilt anymore. We're motivated out of reverence for God and gratitude for what He's done for us on Calvary's cross. We're free. We're truly grown men now. And we're treated like grown-ups by the living God who has set us free from all of these, these things. But the greatest freedom Paul shows us here in verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The new covenant progressively transforms rather than fades. We have the freedom, gentlemen, to behold the glory of God. I only have four minutes. The basic theme of the Scripture is all about the glory of God. God displays His glory in creation from the very beginning. He speaks and everything comes into being. And it's in beautiful order. And then He he breathes life into dust and makes the crown of His creation. Human beings. And we're told that in Psalm 8, uh, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Your glory is above the heavens. His glory is the height of everything. It's the glory of God. And we're told in Psalm 19, once again by David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. So everything in creation is about the glory of God. And then David also says in Psalm 29 verse 1, declare His glory among the nations. So the whole reason for being human beings is to reflect His glory and to proclaim His glory everywhere. And what we found has happened as a result of sin is that we have laid aside the glory of God. And as Paul says, we've fallen short of the glory. This is the great tragedy for human beings. We no longer have the glory. We had the glory when we were made. We were made in His image. And intuitively, inside to out, we did exactly what He wanted us to do, and we enjoyed it. We had the glory of God on us. And the whole challenge of human salvation is how do we get the glory back? And there are so many false ways that are tried. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, secularism, atheism, all kinds of ways to try to get human beings back, their glory. And the Apostle Paul says there's only one way to get the glory. And that's through Jesus Christ who liberates us from the ignorance of old religious ways to try to get our glory. And we now behold the glory. That's what happens in the new covenant. You, above all human beings on the face of the earth, when you receive Christ, you now behold the glory. John says, the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. That's what was so amazing to Him. That the glory became flesh so that we could touch Him and hear Him and see Him and get to know Him. And why did you get to know Him? For only one reason. He wants you to know Him. That's how much He loves you. He wants you to know Him like your Father. So He shows you the glory in a way that doesn't destroy you. He brings the glory of God in human flesh that you can deal with and it won't wipe you out. And Paul says the old covenant, the old Judaistic way of doing things, never reveals the glory. The gospel reveals the glory. And what is it? You with unveiled face now, 
You're beholding the glory of God in the gospel, in the face of Jesus Christ. And what happens when you've got the glory? You're reflecting the glory. You're praising Him. You're becoming more like Him. That's the essence of the glory. Look at the last phrase here. He says, from one degree of glory to another, we're being transformed into His image. So by the power of the gospel, we're given access to see the glory of Christ, to behold Him. And as we behold Him, He's transforming us. That's how the new covenant works. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we keep looking to Him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the power to live a Christian life, and for the eager anticipation of being with Him. And the more we look at Him, the more He transforms us. Paul says, this is the new covenant. What substitute do you have for that? What can these new teachers give you? What can liberal Protestantism give you? What can Buddhism give you? What can anybody give you that doesn't put Christ at the very center of the universe? They give you nothing. They give you death and condemnation and that whatever they give you, it's only for a season. And here you have the permanent glory of God given to unworthy sinners in the gospel. So Paul says, you want my credentials? Look at the disciples in the church where the gospel is being preached. And look at the message and see what it accomplishes. And only this message for us and for everybody in the world can introduce someone to the glory of God and transform them so that one day they look like Jesus Christ. All glory and honor and praise be given to Him forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, forgive us for the times when we've wondered there must be some other way to know God. And we've even created little systems of thought in our minds about how we could subvert the gospel or go around the gospel or avoid the gospel or come up with some new gospel. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. And we ask that you will remind us this day how glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ is and there's nothing that could even hold a candle to it. Everything else is darkness. Everything else is death. Everything else is condemnation. And nothing will progressively transform us into the likeness of Christ but the glorious and simple gospel of Jesus. Help us to be men who believe it today, who proclaim it, who pray for its progress here and around the world. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.